0: Of Med Medical Education for the Practicing Clinician. In this episode, I had the unique opportunity to interview Dr. Andy Pavia. Dr. Pavia is a nationally known infectious disease expert and professor of pediatric infectious disease at the University of Utah. He has sat on national advisory committees for the CDC and Infectious Disease Society of America and has testified to Congress on public health threat preparedness. He has published more than 250 scholarly articles, textbook chapters, reviews, and scientific abstracts. He has known Dr. Fauci for 30 years. In this episode, we discuss COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. We also discuss evidence-based ways that clinicians can address vaccine hesitancy that can help increase the number of people that will take this important vaccine. On our website, you will find links to articles related to COVID vaccine hesitancy that give you a more in-depth look at this issue. As always, free CME credit is available on the website as well. Please enjoy the stimulating and timely conversation with Dr. Pavia. Thanks. So welcome to MED, Medical Education for the Practicing Clinician. Today, we're very lucky to have with us Dr. Andy Pavia, who is a pediatric infectious disease doctor at the University of Utah. He got his bachelor's in medical degree at Brown and then did a combined internal medicine and pediatric residency at Dartmouth and the University of Utah and a fellowship in pediatric and adult infectious disease at the University of Utah. And then he trained as an epidemic intelligence officer at the CDC. He's been on faculty at the University of Utah since 1991. And since 2003, he's been the chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Disease. He's very involved on the national scene of infectious disease and epidemiology. He has served two terms on the CDC Board of Scientific Counselors, a member of the Board of Directors of the Infectious Disease Society of America, chaired the Vaccine Safety Working Group at the CDC, and been the PI or co-PI on grants from the NIH, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He's a frequent consultant to the CDC You may have heard him on NPR discussing COVID, or I found a video of you testifying to Congress on public health threat preparedness from a while ago, so I guess maybe we should have listened a while ago when you were talking. (laughs) Is there any other uh, big notes that I missed that you want us to tell tell us about yourself?
1: (laughs) No, that makes me uh, sound very old and feel very old. Um, (laughs) But you you did bring up um, that testimony before Congress, and Really, I've been involved with a lot of other experts in this area on pandemic preparedness now for some 20-odd years, trying to raise the level of awareness and the level of preparation on pandemics. Of course, we we put flu at the top of our list of pandemics right. and coronavirus number two. So uh, we were wrong about that and so many other things. But you know, at, at least we knew that we needed to be better prepared for pandemics.
0: So you actually thought about coronavirus prior to this?
1: No, the the, you know SARS uh, pandemic. uh, SARS it wasn't a pandemic although it did spread around the world. The the SARS uh, crisis really was a wake-up call, and people will probably have forgotten most of the details. I believe it was in 2003. It involved uh, four continents. um, Ended up killing about 8,000 people. Uh, and was really quite lethal and spread easily in hospitals, but it was easily contained because it didn't spread outside of hospitals and people only were contagious after they got very sick. Mm. Uh, But it was a wake-up call that these coronaviruses, which are everywhere in the animal kingdom, had the ability to spill over, jump into our species. And then MERS, uh, which people may remember as the other coronavirus that took on an epidemic form spread from camels who presumably were infected by another reservoir like bats, Mm -hmm. but caused some pretty severe disease in the Middle East uh, with one outbreak occurring in Korea. So we knew coronaviruses had a lot of tricks up their sleeve, but we were still, we underestimated our opponent.
0: For sure. So do you think we have learned some lessons that'll make us better prepared for the next pandemic or epidemic that will come our way eventually, I'm sure?
1: Well, I have two answers for that. Scientifically, I think we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about the flexibility of coronaviruses. We've watched this coronavirus really um, evolve in front of us, you know, from its first jump into humans to becoming this very efficient and deadly pathogen that spreads so easily. Um, So I think we've learned a lot about how to track potential emerging infections, about how to dig down and look at their genetic code to understand what they can do, uh, to try and figure out when it's a completely new disease what might mean. So I'm optimistic about that part. The the other part is, are we going to invest in the infrastructure it's going to take to detect something early? Are we going to political will to stop it? Are we going to have the tools at hand? Uh, even though I'm normally an optimist, I'm kind of pessimistic about that. I think as soon as, as the pent goes away, our attention will turn somewhere else. Uh, nobody ever wants to invest in the fire department until the house is burning. Sure. And I think we're going to see the same thing when the time comes to build up our preparedness.
0: Well, that's unfortunate, but today, hopefully we're gonna talk about a vaccine, which I'm sure a year ago, no one thought we'd have in millions of people's arms by now. That's pretty incredible. So that's a good thing, but unfortunately not everyone is taking it, which is unfortunate.
1: Yeah, I mean, these vaccines exceeded most of our wildest expectations. We didn't expect a vaccine that would be greater than 90% effective love of them. And several others that have efficacy that we would have, you know, we would have killed for before that uh, you know, the 70s would have been a great target uh, for efficacy. And these vaccines have proved to be really very, very safe. Uh, the mRNA vaccines, aside from anaphylaxis, have really not hit any serious or life-threatening side effects, at least as we understand it so far, with all the caveats about what we don't know yet. Um, you know, the clotting side effect that appears to be associated with the J&J vaccine appears to be extraordinarily rare, and the incidence of really severe side effects is probably on a par with other vaccines that we use. So, we, you know, we really lucked out. We uh, were able to produce really effective vaccines in record time and right. do it well, so, such that we have really good safety data and have confidence using them.
0: Yeah. Do you want to just explain to people what the um, vaccine efficacy of other, you know, widely commonly used vaccines are? Because it's much lower than this 90, 95%, right?
1: Yeah, well, it ranges all over the place. So uh, one good example is the influenza vaccine, you know, vaccine I'm very fond of, I think it's very important. But uh, its efficacy ranges uh, in an average year, about 50 to 60% but we frequently have years in which it's not very effective at all. and may have an efficacy of 20% or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, pertussis is another one that everyone thinks about and everyone worries about whooping cough. And yet the efficacy of the vaccine is probably in the range of about 80-ish percent in the first year or two afterwards. And it fades to close to nothing by 10 years. Right. Uh, so you know, only a handful of our vaccines get close to 90% efficacy, measles, is our previous champion uh, mm-hmm. and um, the new shingles vaccine uh, exceeds 90%, but you can count on the fingers of one hand vaccines that are as good as these COVID mRNA vaccines.
0: Right, so you mentioned the j vaccine. I'm sad about that because from a physician who's trying to convince patients to get vaccinated, now they're all bringing that up as a, you know, it's not safe anymore. Do you think that the, I mean, this is, might be a loaded question, but the federal government made the right decision there with pausing use of it, given how low of a risk it is to get the side effect?
1: Yeah, it, it was kind of a Hobbes choice, wasn't it? Um, either they could push on forward because they had a rare side effect and risk the fact that it was worse than they knew and lose trust, mm-hmm. or they could uh, do what I think was the right decision which was to pause, get all the information they possibly could, maintain complete transparency and trust with the American people and with the medical profession, um, and then try and explain when all was said and done uh, how rare the side effects were. We know it's going to cost us some people's, it's going to cost something in confidence. People are going to not dig down deep and they're gonna hear, oh my God, their blood clots, one person died and and fail to put it in contact. And yet I don't think there was any other good choice. I think you really had to take it seriously. You had to gather all the data you could and you had to be transparent.
0: How long do you think this pause will last for until sometime this week?
1: That's what I think is most likely. Uh, The ACP is meeting on Friday. Uh, We don't know of any large number of additional cases that have been found, and the intention was always once they had really collected all the additional cases they could uh, to go ahead and get the vaccination uh, program rolling again and figure out whether there were caveats needed. Um, You know, so far, all of the cases of central venous thrombosis have been in young women, uh, 18 to 49, and so, you know, there are a number of options, for instance, they could give uh, some clear guidance and warnings, particularly aimed at the group that appears to be most at risk. They have done a great job, I think, so far of educating physicians that this looks like heparin-induced thrombocytopenia uh, and thrombosis or autoimmune thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. So we should be using heparin uh, anticoagulants if we suspect it and that the cardinal sign is thrombocytopenia. you know, and, and we may preferentially think about who uh, should get the J&J vaccine. And, you know, it may not be the very best option for women of reproductive age, particularly if they have other risk factors for clotting, like right. using hormonal medications or all contraceptives or uh, drugs for menstrual irregularities. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, or if you're if you're pregnant, is it okay to get J&J?
1: Well, we don't know. I mean, there have been no complications so far among pregnant women, but pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. And you know, we've all seen um pregnant women have clotting complications, just Mm. like women on OCPs do. So that might be a group in which the mRNA vaccines are, you know, provide you an an extra margin of safety.
0: Right. Yeah. So I was hoping we could go over some of the most common um, questions that people on the front line get when we're trying to talk to people about vaccines. I wanted to tell you what I do at my clinic and you can tell me if this is good or not or what I should be doing differently. So my clinic is a little unique because it's um, a lot of refugees and immigrants and people who English is not their first language that presents its own challenges. One thing that we do that I think is great and we're fortunate about is we are a site for the um, health department for vaccination and the health department actually sets aside a number of doses per day for our own patients. So I'm able to, I mean, since I'm a pediatrician, most of my patients are under 16, but obviously their parents usually aren't. So I can say, hey, you're here for your two month well child check. We can do your COVID vaccine today too. Isn't that great? You don't have to go on the website. You don't have to coordinate the scheduling. So for my patients who English is not their first language, you know, I've been able to get a fair number of them to get vaccinated that way. So I feel like not every place is able to do that. And that's really great that the health department recognized, you know, that we're an underserved community and we have that need. Um, And then trying to tell people that it's free um, and that anyone can get it regardless of insurance or I have a lot of folks who might, you know be undocumented or not have, you know, um, immigration status that they want to disclose and that they can get it for free as well. Um, which is also, I think people don't know that and that's something to pass on. But the other thing I did was I typed up a little piece of paper that says, you know, dear caregivers and parents, you know, I got the vaccine. I think it's safe. My family got the vaccine. Um, It's the only, you know, the best way you can protect your children since most children can't get it. You know, please get it basically and let me know if you have questions and here's the website. So that's like on the back of all my doors. So you know, they can at least look at that while they're waiting for me. Um, What do you think of that? Is is that a good start? Is that any major flags that you think I could be doing from the very beginning?
1: I think you're you're doing all these practices that we know work with vaccines. We know that if we give people straightforward messages that uh, this vaccine has a lot of benefits for you, it's available, I'd like you to get it today, that that's a much stronger uh, message and much more likely to lead to somebody getting the vaccine than saying, okay now let's talk talk about the risks and benefits of say the HPv vaccine and all the bad things you might have heard about it yeah. that I'm going to tell you aren't really true right. you know I think uh, that's one thing that we know really helps people make the decision to get vaccinated is hearing that you know it's something we do all the time for our patients and we expect uh, that it's good for them mm-hmm. the other really clear messaging about the benefits of a vaccine people want to know you know what's why should they do it? And protecting their children, obviously, is one of the very top values that we yeah, all have. Yeah,
0: totally trying And, and then, uh, <laughs> well, it's not guilt,
1: right? Yeah, right, I know, you know, I know. What, I mean, it's people true. People want and either to be-
0: You know, protecting your kids. Yeah. Otherwise, if you don't get sick, they're much less likely to get sick and they seem to buy into
1: yeah. that, so. I mean, in a more upper uh, socioeconomic group, they might want to be able to get on airplanes. They might be able to want to go work in person. So that's a clear benefit. For patients, you know, facing the kinds of challenges that your patients do, there are jobs that will only be open to them eventually if they're vaccinated. They can uh, protect their kids. Um, they can probably feel safe working in jobs where they don't have the kinds of protections of working through telecommuting that uh, you know many people do. And then the last thing that you do that I think is really terrific is, you know, people trust us when they see that we're say, we're walking the walk and. Uh, talking the talk. I always start out my conversations about vaccines by saying, you know, my kids are vaccinated with every vaccine on time. And my daughter got the first dose of haemophilus influenza B vaccine given in the state of Utah outside of a clinical trial. Um, And I've gotten every vaccine I'm eligible for, Uh, you know, and it it means we're not um, saying uh, do as I say, not do as I do. This is how we treat our own families as well as our patients.
0: Right. And I think anything you read about and I learned this in residency about vaccines is if you as a provider as a caregiver or you know tell them I did this myself I want you to do it that's better than anything they're going to read really is that if they trust you and you as their physician tell them do this it's a good thing I did it that seems to be the best way to get people convinced
1: yeah (laughs) You know, we, uh, when I was uh, on this vaccine safety subcommittee for the um, National Vaccine Advisory Committee, we did a lot of digging into the literature on um, the psychology of vaccine hesitancy. And there are all these things that are counterintuitive. So if you start to talk about autism with somebody who has heard that, that vaccines cause autism, um, rather than hearing you say that there are over 20 high-quality studies that disprove this and Andrew Wakefield is a fraud, they just hear autism. She's talking about autism. There must be something to this, and it just triggers that memory uh, that there was something to worry about. Mm-hmm. So, in our, you know, our, our bias to give people all the data we possibly can, we sometimes trigger their fears more than provide them the reassurance we're trying to give them.
0: Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. And I was thinking of that that paper that you sent me about the different, um, you know, vaccine hesitancy things around COVID, one being the political factors. That's not something I address at all in the clinic. And I don't know if you recommend, I don't know how to even open that or if it's worth, I just don't do it because I, I don't know what to say, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I don't either. And I'm still kind of flabbergasted about the entry of politics into this pandemic, whether it's about masks and now about vaccines. You know, we've we've heard over and over again that uh, Republican men who voted for Trump are the least likely group in the country to want to get vaccinated. I mean, when, when Americans say, you know, we don't trust the medical establishment because of Tuskegee and because of our unequal access to quality of care, you have to say, well, okay, that's, that's a reason to be somewhat distrustful. But... Uh, you know, to distrust because people who share your political views have downplayed the pandemic or um, have tried to convince you that it's not real. That's really hard to get your hands around. So how would I approach it? Um, You know, I guess I'm often in the position trying to tell people, you know, the pandemic's really real. Talk to my friends who spent the last year working in an ICU. Right. pronounce three people dead a shift, right. um, you know, talk to the people who've lost a parent or a grandparent that, you know, this is as real as can be. That may help, um, you know, in terms of believing that the disease is bad, I, but I don't know that whether it really helps people, uh, you know, want to get vaccinated if they've got political reasons not to.
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, so I know there's the whole group that are like, no, I'm not going to do it at all. You know, you're not supposed to spend that much time on them. Then there's a kind of in between. Even for the no people, I feel like at least if I mention it, it might open the door for next time I see them to be a little bit more open to it. But I don't know, maybe it's just a waste of time. <laughs> but that's what I've been doing thus far.
1: <laughs> I think it's very similar. You probably do this, um, but maybe not so much in your population, but, um, you know, about people who are hesitant about childhood vaccines is, you open the door, and if you get a firm no, uh, you just come back to it on the next visit and the next visit, um, right. rather than trying to hammer home. Yeah. You know, in my experience, which isn't as deep as yours, people come from countries where childhood diseases are endemic. So, it, you know, my experience, um, people come from countries where childhood diseases are rampant and where they've seen children die, really understand the value of vaccines. For sure. Um, have you seen children die of measles, you know, can't wait for their child to get their MMR vaccine.
0: Yep. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I have no, the amount of vaccine hesitancy I have in my refugee population is pretty much zero, but I still, it's interesting because I thought their parents would be all excited about getting the COVID vaccine, but I have a lot of hesitancy about that for the parents, which has been a bit frustrating. One of the big things is they're worried about the long-term effects. And I feel like I don't have a great answer for that because it hasn't been a long time. What, what is your suggestion for, for that addressing that question? I mean, part of it is I'm honest. I'm like, you're right. We don't know how you know the long-term okay. effects, but the chances of it being something serious are low and the risk of COVID is real. But beyond that, is there much else that you can think of that is good to say?
1: Well, there are, you know, the, the long-term. Side effects of vaccines that are bad almost always present right away. So, something like Guillain Barre syndrome occurs within a few weeks. Um, You know, those rare cases of encephalitis that we used to see with the old DPT vaccine, those came on within a few uh, hours to days. There really are no side effects that we know about that show up months later for any other vaccine. So, we don't expect that likely for these vaccines. And we're now You know, five months into it, um, uh, 130 million Americans have been vaccinated, say nothing of the rest of the world. So if there were really bad things cropping up with any frequency, I think we would begin to see them. You know, while we always have to acknowledge that no medicine is completely safe, vaccines are probably the safest of of all our medicines, Mm -hmm. but they're still medicines.
0: Right, right. And then the other main one I get is this whole was it rushed, the process rushed compared to other vaccines? Because I think yeah. people have this idea that vaccines take years to develop. So, how it could it have been developed in a few months? What's your response to that?
1: Well, I tell people that the process itself was not rushed. What they did was cut out the dead time, they cut out the time between phase one, where they sit around looking at the data. They cut, around the, uh, cut out the time that it takes to start producing the vaccine while waiting to see how the phase two and phase three studies turned out so that they had vaccine ready to put in arms as soon as the phase three studies were finished, as opposed to another year or two to build the factories and get them certified that we would normally see. Okay. There was legitimate reason to worry about politics intruding. Uh, and you know we all worried about it in September and October, some of the things that were said By the past administration, kind of made you nervous, right? But when all was said and done, um, I also tell people, you know, the FDA made all of the data they reviewed public. I sat up the night before the FDA hearing, just like the people on the committee, and poured over the data for myself. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, our patients can do that too. So I think transparency is what really gave us confidence.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really great thing to remember when we're talking to the patients. Another problem I have is that since I have a pediatric population, most of their parents are on the younger side. They tell me, well, the chances of me getting sick aren't high, or I already had COVID and it was just not like a bad cold, so why should I get vaccinated when I'm not going to you know, be that sick? And... I tell them, well, just because you had COVID once doesn't mean it will be the same way the second time you get it. And then a lot of my families live in like multi-generational households. So I try and say, hey, you can protect your mom, your great aunt, you know, whomever lives with you. But I think, I mean, that is, it is hard to say. I don't know, that that can be a challenging one because yeah, most younger people are going to be okay but it's more of an altruistic thing. It's not just you, you know?
1: Yeah, I I think the other thing that young people are worried about are the you know lung COVID type symptoms,
0: right? Because
1: right. even if the disease itself isn't that bad, if you can't work, if you can't play soccer, if you can't concentrate for a few months, that can be pretty devastating to your livelihood and your ability to do the things that you care about. That probably matters more to young people than that very small chance of dying, um, or even of being hospitalized and ending up on a ventilator. And I think you know, for lots of people, as you said you know, the ability to protect those around you is ultimately gonna be an important uh, reason to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you infect your mother your grandmother, how are you gonna live with yourself? Or for that matter, you know, just uh, a neighbor.
0: Right, right, for sure. Um, I didn't know this. Are younger people more likely to have long COVID symptoms versus older people who survive COVID?
1: I don't think we know that, but I think long COVID, is much more disruptive, you know, it's much more of a, a real threat to young people in terms of how they think about it. You know, they get over, over in a week and maybe they felt terrible but they recover. But you know, if um, they have heart scarring, if they've got persistent memory deficits or sleep disturbance, um, you know, that really is really problematic. Um, you know, as somebody mostly does pediatric infectious disease, I don't see a lot of the young adults with long COVID, but my colleagues who do tell me that people are missing work for weeks and months.
0: Yeah. Um, Or dropping out of school. Yeah. Um, I heard that we're opening a long COVID clinic at the University of Utah. Have you heard about that? And is that true?
1: Yes, we are. So there's one that was just started at Intermountain and we're opening one at the university um, and, and, you know, there, it's got two purposes. One is to figure out how best to care for people in the short term, but the other is to really do the research it takes to figure out what the right treatments are. Cause mm-hmm. right now we don't really know. Right. Um, you know, we know that we have to look for organ dysfunction, a small proportion of people with long COVID symptoms will actually really have heart damage or, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, um, yeah, but, but we also know that some of the people who are complaining about brain fog when they have neuropsych testing really are showing major cognitive uh, deficits. And mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out what to do about that. For many of the others, it looks like the post-viral you know, fatigue syndrome that we've all dealt with uh-huh. uh, in, in primary care. We don't understand very well, but the symptoms are very, very real.
0: Right, right. What I was going to say is it's interesting how some people with long COVID get better after they get vaccinated. Does anyone know why that's the case?
1: No. And I think um, when the first reports came out, people were very skeptical, but there's now some uh, beginnings of data to suggest that it's real and that vaccination may reset uh, the symptoms for people. You can imagine a couple ways it might work, but we have no data. One is Um, And probably the one I think is most likely is that if a dysfunctional persistent immune response is what's causing the symptoms, that vaccination resets the immune response, perhaps to more of a Th1 type response, um, perhaps some other more subtle change in cytokines. And maybe that's what helps you feel better. Others have speculated that maybe there's some viral antigen that persists Mm -hmm. and by making more antibody, you bind that and you're protected. I think that's a little bit more uh, in the realm of hypothetical, mm-hmm. but we just don't know. And we're not 100% sure that vaccination is the answer, but I certainly would recommend that anyone who has long COVID symptoms, who hasn't been vaccinated, give it a try because the anecdotal data does not suggest it makes people worse.
0: Right, yeah. Um, And it used to be that if you had COVID, say wait 90 days to get vaccinated, wait 30 days, but now is there any wait time that you should wait before you get vaccinated? Now that's available everywhere?
1: Yeah, so it was a way of um, stretching the vaccine supply because people who had had COVID in the last 90 days were less likely to get reinfected in that short time period. But now that the vaccine supply is increasing Uh, we're really recommending that people get vaccinated anyway. The other uh, thing that's really interesting is that people who've had COVID before mount a very good response after their first dose of vaccine. And it's quite possible that uh, with a little bit more data, we're going to recommend that if you had COVID before, you only need one dose of the mRNA vaccines. We're not there yet. We don't have the answers.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Their immune system's already been boosted that one time, so maybe they just need that that second push. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this has been great info. My last question is, so as far as I know, you're on a first-name uh, basis with Dr. Fauci. Is, what is he like in real life? He's like this uh, mythical hero to all of us doctors out here.
1: <laughs> well, I, so I've known him for about 30-odd uh, years. We're not good friends or anything, but we've worked... Around some of the same diseases uh, and have been in a lot of meetings together. He is um, very, he's incredibly smart. Right. He is quite decisive, but in a very nice and humble sort of way. I will say that, you know, when I was a young HIV doc, I was in meetings with Dr. Fauci, I was pretty intimidated, but I was um, was also full enough of myself to challenge him on a Mm -hmm. few things. I usually turned out to be wrong, and he was right, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But he's, you know, he's mellowed with age. He is, um, he's incredibly caring and thoughtful. You know, for somebody who is one of the premier scientists of our age, he's also somebody who still goes on rounds or did until the COVID uh, outbreak and saw patients in infectious disease consultation. Mm-hmm. Really is um, certainly one of my heroes.
0: Yeah. And I don't think many people knew his name before a year ago and now he's uh, definitely well respected throughout the country. So that's pretty great. My last question is, how did we keep you in Utah, if you do all these national things. Is it our, our mountains or what
1: uh, I'm not telling, but if you look in my garage, you might find a few clues hanging on the walls.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say from so Dr. Pavia was one of my teachers in residency. I think I remember you riding your bike to work or biking a lot. Do you still do that?
1: yeah, you know, I, I try and get out on the road bike, mountain bike, backcountry skiing, um, downhill skiing, you know, all the great things that Utah has to offer. Right. Um, Just don't to, tell the people from California. You know, hard, yeah, no, it's terrible here. Tell the people from California that, right. um, <laughs> right. you know, it's hot and dry and crowded and you can't get a drink.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> there you go. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Pavia. I think this was really good information for folks to hear. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks so much. It was great doing this with you.
0: Yeah, thank you. Take care.
1: Bye. Take care.